you are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Several months ago, uh, late June, early July, I set out to climb 25 mountains in five days, 25 4,000 plus foot mountains in five days. And it is as insane as it sounds (laughs) and also impossible. So spoiler, we didn't make it. Uh, It was the hardest thing I've ever done. Uh, Since then, I haven't exercised. I've just been setting like Olympic levels of lounging. Uh, Since since that moment, it was incredibly difficult. Day one, uh, one of the three guys that were with me uh, decided he was out. He was done. He was like, my legs are cramping. My feet are torn. Like I've gotten dizzy and fallen. This isn't safe. You guys are insane. And just sort of hiked out of there, uh, which was really concerning because he planned the trip. <laughs> and, uh, and yet the other person that was there with me was my younger brother, John. And we decided we were gonna press on and go as far as we could go because this wasn't just a vacation. We weren't out there to go sightseeing. We, we stepped out there to join a movement, uh, a group of people all over the United States and around the world that were calling attention to this reality that there are people right now around the world and in the United States who are bought and sold against their will, the issue of human trafficking. And we were calling attention to this reality that even for the less than 1% of those who have the opportunity uh, for law enforcement to intervene or for themselves to escape, for, for those 1%, that, that is only the beginning of an incredibly difficult journey of recovery. It requires courage and grit. It, it's like swimming the English Channel or or finishing an Ironman, or climbing 25 mountains in in five days. That's the idea. We were calling attention to that reality. And so my brother and I, we set our faces like stone towards that goal. And we said, we're going to go as far as we can uh, to call attention to this reality, to let people know what's happening in the world. And by the grace of God, uh, there was lightning above the ridgeline a couple of days. So we weren't able to hike. uh, But we did finish 16 mountains in the course of three days. We, We did about five a day, which is pretty incredible. Um, And all along the way, we were reading these Psalms of Ascent. I felt appropriate as we were ascending these mountains. We were reading these 15 Psalms of Ascent. Uh, And it's amazing as you read in motion how it sort of gets in you. And when we get to the top of the mountains, we pray for these survivors by name. And it was remarkable how these songs, as we sang them in motion, just embedded themselves in our psyche and our imagination and began to, to transform the way that we thought about those Moments, And that was sort of the point. That was the idea of the Psalms of Ascent. There were only 15 of them. And uh, it was the post-exilic people of Israel. They put together 15 Psalms that had been written throughout the ages. And one of those was the Psalm of David, uh, the king that we've been studying. And they put it in there because each of these Psalms were meant to communicate something essential about the nature and character of God, such that it would transform the way that they saw their own nature and character, that they would sing them three times a year as they ascended the hill into Jerusalem. And the song that David wrote is about this reality, that we have a God who is not aloof from our pain and suffering, that he is imminent in it. He is present with us, that we have a God who would condescend to lower himself, to lift humanity up in our helpless state, that God intervenes. That's this psalm that we serve a God who intervenes. And David knew this personally. Think about the life of David. David had been delivered from the hand of Goliath, not because he was strong, but because he was weak, that God would lower himself to lift David uh, and rescue the people of Israel. He knew it from the fields beforehand, and, and he knew it just by virtue of being a part of the nation of Israel. What was Israel 
except a nation of slaves that God set free, that parted the Red Sea, and he called them to himself that, that God would rescue, redeem, make whole, and make new. And so he wrote this song that the Israelites were meant to sing, and it was meant to be a defining a defining song. It came to define who they were. This is who you are. You're one of the rescued ones. You're one of the redeemed ones. And, and, and so therefore you're a part of God's rescuing and redeeming work in this world. That's who you are. And now we stand in the line of thousands of generations who have been singing this, that this is who you are. This is meant to define who you are as a believer. When you enter into the kingdom of God, this now is essential to your character, even as it's essential to the character of our God. If the king behaves in this manner, then the citizens of the kingdom uh, behave likewise. God is rescuing. He is redeeming. He is restorative. And therefore, so are we. We step out into the world with that as our identity marker. So we all have things that we sort of, um, at the bottom level, think about in terms of who we are, uh, like the things that have come to define us. It works socially, like friends, uh, Chandler's the funny one and Phoebe's the crazy one and Ross is the one that gets divorces, right? Like we all have something that has sort of come to define us. For me, for better or worse, uh, if you've known me for a while, maybe you have a friend like this, maybe I'm your friend like this. Uh, one of the things that's come to define me is, is saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment. You know that person? Uh, like I just have this unbelievable ability to put my foot in my mouth and say the wrong thing. So like uh, all the way back to when I was in high school, like 17, 18 years old. And if you were an adolescent boy in 2007, 2008, you might remember a trend where uh, if someone said a word that was sort of interesting uh, or out of the box, you would put the words you are in front of it. You are a, you're a, whatever. And it was meant to be goofy and creative and bring some like shock value. It was sort of the precursor to that's what she said. It paved the way for that's what she said. And, uh, and yet as a 17 year old, it, you just get lost in it. Like it just became so much a part of like, you would just say it for anything. It didn't matter. It didn't matter what it was. You'd be like, that's a big balcony. You're a big balcony. Like just sort of came out, right? And uh, so there was a moment where I was at youth camp for the first time and I was walking back from worship with my best friend and this lovely young woman. And uh, we're walking back and she's caught up in the moment. She had been worshiping. She looks up into the heavens and she's like, oh, look at the stars. They're so big. They look like planets. And I said, you're a planet. <laughs> she wasn't, but, but I said it and she stopped walking. And, and then I looked at my best friend for a little bit of support. And I just remember his back and his elbow sort of power walking <laughs> away from that cosmic foot and mouth, right? Because I didn't just, I didn't call her like an elephant or, or like a lake or something. I called her one of the biggest things in the known universe. <laughs> called her a planet, right? That's hard to recover from, <laughs> just speaking from experience. A few years later, I was a best man in a wedding, like 21 or 22. I was standing in a, a circle of people and uh, there was a bridesmaid uh, who was cute and I was single, very much ready to mingle, right? And so we had been having some conversations and I was trying to figure out if she was like dateable, you know, like are we in the same like general life stage and whatever. So I asked her when she graduated from college and I realized it's really obvious what I'm doing. Like, it's pretty clear. I'm trying to figure out how old she was. So I decided to out myself, like just tell on myself. And uh, the phrase that came to mind is that phrase that like old ladies will say when you ask them where they were during Pearl Harbor. And they're like, oh, you're dating me. You're figuring out how old I am. You're aging me. And so what I tried to say was, I'm trying to figure out how old you are. What came out of my mouth was, I'm trying to date you. <laughs> and, uh, and everyone in that circle was like, whoa, okay, it just got a little warmer in here. And uh, clarity, wow, clarity is kindness. Um, incidentally, this is not part of the story, but she did give me her number later. So I'm just saying, guys, 
say what you mean. Mean what you say. Like, just be, sometimes just be clear. It, it works, apparently. Uh, but that's not even the worst. That's not the worst of them. Uh, a couple of years after that, I was starting grad school up in Boston, and I had just come out of a two-year uh, sort of lingering on-again, off-again relationship. And at the end of that, we didn't put the proper boundary markers on it. You know, like, I don't know if you've been there. Maybe it's just me. No one in the first gathering had ever been there. They all were perfect with closure and cut it all off. Uh, but I wasn't, unfortunately. And so we kind of kept talking after we broke up and her birthday came around. So I thought it would be weird to not text her on her birthday. Like we've been texting, but I didn't want to text anything like flirtatious or confusing. So I just sent something right down the middle, super platonic. I just texted her 25 and still alive, exclamation mark. Except I was... Um, nervous and unsure if I was doing the right thing. So I typed it quick and sent it before I could rethink it and didn't realize that I'd mistyped the word alive. And so the text that she received was 25 and still alone <laughs> on her birthday, right? And uh, so that provided us all the closure that we needed. That was it, that, that did it. Uh, but we've all got something that we're known for, right? And that just happens to be mine, unfortunately. And I've got friends who will not let me forget any of those things. I'll still get texts that just say, you're a planet. Like they're just, they're not gonna let me forget it. Uh, and we've all got something that's sort of come to define us. That's true socially uh, and it's true spiritually. You see this all throughout our text that as we enter into the kingdom of God and we come into the community of the people of Jesus, we all bring something that we look to as this is like the bedrock, this is who I am. And sadly, often it's something that we have struggled with, some sin issue in our lives that we bring to the table. When we look in the mirror, we go to bed at night, we think I am whatever it may be for you. Maybe it's the way that you use your mouth, the way that you talk to people. Maybe it's pride. You have this incessant ability of making everything about you and, and wanting everyone else to make things about you. Maybe it's the way that you manipulate people, uh, use your, your influence, your humor, your beauty to get people to do what you want with no regard for their well-being. You see this all throughout our Bible. You saw it with the person of Paul. He said, when I entered into the kingdom, man, the thing for me was, was coveting. I couldn't stop. Like if I saw someone that had something that I wanted, I, I wanted it. Like if I saw respect or success from them, I, I wanted it and I hated them for having it. That was my deal. That's what I struggled with. Or Jonah, his name meant silly little dove or fool. He was famous for just missing the point. That was his deal, right? Or, or Jacob, uh, whose name was graciously later changed to, to Israel. God gave him a name change. He said, no longer are you Jacob because his name sounded like the Hebrew word for deceiver. And his brother would say, rightly were you called Jacob because you have deceived me these two times to take what was rightfully mine. And Jacob couldn't stop lying to get what he wanted. That was his deal. That's what he brought. And these things can come to define us, right? Maybe for you, it's an addiction. You saw something when you were younger, you didn't ask to see. And then curiosity, turned into temptation and temptation turned into an addiction. So when you look in the mirror, you think addict. We all come to the table with something that has come to define us. We see this all the time in the line of work that I do in the world of anti-trafficking. Uh, just Thursday, just a couple of days ago, uh, we were in a safe home uh, where a woman and women have had an opportunity to, to um, be extracted from human trafficking and brought to a safe place. And one of the women we've become friends with and after almost a year of friendship, um, she showed us on her arm, rolled up her sleeve, a, a tattoo that was forcibly placed on her uh, that was her, her trafficker's particular brand. And we've had women come to us that have their, their pimp or trafficker's name tattooed on their body like you would brand a cow. Uh, we had one woman come that had a dollar sign tattooed on her face so that every time she looked in the mirror, she was reminded, you're just a way to make me money. That's all you are. That's who you are. And so it's no accident that the name of our organization means daughter of the king. 
means female royalty so that she would go, every single woman that comes into one of our homes would go from seeing herself as worthless or enslaved or entrapped to beloved daughter of King Jesus forever. You have dignity, you have beauty, you have authority. That's who you are. And David understood this. Yeah, this is, this is what David's writing about. He wrote a song that was meant to reframe how we looked at the world and how we looked at ourselves. He said, at your bottom, at the base, I want you to sing this in motion so that it gets in you. You're one of the rescued ones. You're one of the redeemed ones. You are loved by God. And that was meant to frame how we looked at ourselves and how we looked at the world. You are loved. God is imminent in your story. That's who you are. And I think it's so fascinating that David's writing this song and, and we're singing this song about being renovated and rescued and restored while in motion. That's just fascinating to me that there's a movement to this worship and there's an inherent truth embedded in that. And it's this, that true worship involves action. It does. True worship involves action, that there's a movement to worship that pleases God. Jesus would say it like this. You're meant to worship in spirit and in truth. So you're meant to worship in spirit. So when you cry out to God and you enter into a place like this, that's the right and only first step that you're meant to enter into the house of God, sing songs of praise to God, know him through this word. You're meant to worship him in, the, in, in spirit. And then your worship is meant to be the truth so that when people look at you and you're singing songs about being revived and rescued, that they're like, that's the truth. I see it in their lives. They're stepping out to be a reviving, rescuing, redeeming force in this world. There's truth to what they're saying. True worship involves action and empathy. So Romans 12.1 will say it like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. This is your true and proper worship. Think about that. He says, in light of God's mercy, this truth that God it was incarnate, became a human to take on flesh, to die on the cross, to move your sin out of the way so that you could have a right relationship with God, even though you didn't deserve it. He did it just because he loved you. He said, in light of that physical sacrifice, offer your bodies as a physical sacrifice to the world. It's the most natural thing you could do. If you've been loved like that, you're meant to love like that, to step out into the world, to offer yourself for their good. As, as you look at people who are hurting and suffering in this world, you recognize that kingly character kingdom character always uses its power to serve others no matter the cost to self. That's who you are. That's true worship. Worship involves action and worship involves empathy. So Hebrews 13.3 says, remember those who are in prison as if you were in prison. Remember those who are suffering and mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So worship involves action and then it involves empathy that we move towards people in love. This is worship in its fullness. Now this, David understood, was essential to the character of God and to the character of the Old Testament people of Jesus. And that tr transcends not just in his day, but to the big C church throughout history and to this church. So passion. We have a book of values, the things that we hold as essential to who we are as a church and as the people of Jesus. And right there in the center of those values, uh, it says this, we love to worship and we love to sing, but for us, worship is more than a song. It's not less than a song, but it's more than a song. Worship is life. This world is broken. People are hurting and so much of earth, disease, injustice, poverty, and neglect win the day. And that's why God wants more than a song. God wants justice for the poor and the oppressed. And I love this. We believe that worship 
and justice are two sides of the same coin. Singing and action are two sides of the same coin. And our best worship is the song we sing as we reach out to those in need. See, there's a motion to this. There's a movement to our worship. We are meant to be people that move with God in love towards the world. Why? Ultimately, because worship is about knowing God and experiencing him. And to know God, you've got to move with him because God is on the move. We serve an active God. He is active to redeem. He is active to restore. And if you want to be near with him, if you want to be near to him, you better get those legs ready because he's going to keep moving, right? God moves. He's looking at the lost. He's looking towards the hurting, towards the broken, to the marginalized, towards the oppressed. And he is active. Psalm 12, 5, because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place them in the safety for which they long. That's essential to who God is. And so we simply see ourselves as the people of God who will rise with God to place these precious men and women in the safety that they long for. That's who we are because God is active. He's on the move. If you want to know him, you got to move with him because here's the reality. It's entirely possible to grow up in the house of God and know many things about God, but never really know God. It's entirely possible to grow up in the house of God, learning tons of things about God and never really know him because you've never really moved with him. So just after I graduated from college, and this is a story I've told before, but it was 2017 before we had a podcast. If it's not on the internet, it didn't count. So uh, I'm going to tell it again. But just after I graduated from college, uh, I have an uncle who lives out in California. We call him the fun man in my family because he's just wild. Like he's got a surf shack in Baja, Mexico. He's climbed mountains all over the world. He's got places to snowboard in Crested Butte in Colorado. He's got a long beard. He's just a living North Face ad. That's my uncle. And uh, right after I graduated from college, he said, hey, to celebrate, why don't you come vacation with me? Like, let's go on some adventures. And I was like, dude, I would love to, but I'm 22. I just started in a ministry. And if you don't know, and you're 22 and you just started in a ministry, they pay on average $1 a year. That's like, <laughs> that's your salary. Good luck. And I was like, I would love to. I just don't think I can afford it. And uh, he said, look, you pay for your flight and I'll take care of everything else. Like when you're here, you're covered. And so I was like, done. So I got on the plane. I flew to his home out in California and, uh, and it was incredible. It was fun being with him. Uh, my uncle was a father. He got married and had a little girl. So I got to watch this wild man be a dad. Uh, he had heated bathrooms floors. It was a great start to the vacation. Um, but because it was my uncle, the vacation didn't end in his house, right? Day one, he comes into the living room. He's like, dude, let's go mountain biking. And uh, I thought I was a mountain biker. I'm from Texas. Turns out we have trail riding in Texas, right? And I got to go mountain biking for the first time, literally through the redwood trees. Like literally the trees were so big. Some of them hollowed out. You could bike through them. And it was incredible. Lush green. It was a mountain biker's dream. But we didn't stop there because it was my uncle, right? A couple days before Christmas, we were two of the only people insane enough to be out on the Pacific Ocean in December. And yet there we were. And I'll never forget that moment. I'm out there in the Pacific Ocean, the deep blue of the waves rolling under my board, the waves crashing up against the cliffs as Santa Cruz is sort of tucked into the hillside. And that whole moment just took my breath away. And uh, it also took my breath away because the waves were a little big, like it was a little out of my league, but they weren't too big for my uncle. So I remember like, uh, uh, nope, I'm gonna let that one go. My uncle took it. I'll never forget him coming down the crest of that wave and just like shredding across the top and his face lifting over, looking at me. And he's like, I'm a beast. And then just kept, <laughs> kept going. And I was like, you are a beast. You are. I'm not arguing. Uh, and then the next day he took me to church, which was interesting because my uncle is agnostic, um, but he had just had a little girl and she was asking spiritual questions. So he wanted to take her somewhere where they might have some spiritual answers. And because the pastor of that church was one of his surfer buddies, just sort of out in it, moving in the world, uh, he ended up there. And so I'll never forget going to 
into that uh, service. And as the music died down, pastor walked out with his surfer swag and was like, let's just everyone take a moment and think about how gnarly God is. And, uh, and I thought he was joking. Like I thought he was playing a part and nobody was laughing. They were all just like, totally, right? Like that was such a normal thing to say. Uh, and then the next day we packed up, we drove four hours to the Sierra Nevada mountains and we went snowboarding for a couple of days, going off of jumps. I'm learning to ski. It was incredible, right? So when I got home and people asked, how was your vacation? I was like, dude, it was insane. We're in the water one day, we're in the snow the next. It was the craziest. It was the most, I don't even have words. It was the best vacation of my life. Now, why do I tell that story? Why mention that? For this reason. Imagine how different my response would have been to the question, how was your vacation? If every time my uncle showed up with a board or a bike or an adventure and he said, come run with me, I said, no thanks. The bathroom floors are heated, right? It'd have been fine, it's okay, right? I got to watch my uncle be a dad and hang out in a cool house. But the tragedy is I never would have really gotten to know my uncle, not really because my uncle is active. My uncle moves. That's essential to who he is. If you want to know my uncle, you got to move with him. If you want to get to know our God, you got to move with him because our God is active. He is on the move. God is moving towards the lost, the broken, the hurting in this world. And he is inviting us to move with him. He is inviting us into what C.S. Lewis called this great campaign of sabotage. He's writing during World War II, and he says, Jesus, when he came, it was like enemy-occupied, Nazi-occupied France. And when Jesus came, he came to bring a campaign of light against the devastation of this world. And he's inviting you into that. I'm moving in this world. I'm doing some crazy stuff. Why don't you run with me? Why don't you come with me? And that's worship. When we recognize I'm one of the redeemed ones, and I've been redeemed to redeem, God is on the move. And if you want to know him, you got to move with him. God's active. And that's really good news because we live in a broken world. Uh, six times in our passage, we saw at the heart of David's understanding of the universe, who God is and who we are. Six times we see attacked, swallowed alive, objects of anger, swept away in raging, unrelenting waters, prey in the teeth of a predator. We're like a bird trapped in a cage. If it had not been for the Lord, we would have been swept away by the difficulties of this world. And, and many of you don't need me to, to preach that this morning. You feel it. You recognize it. You know it. We live in a broken world. It's true that we live in one of the most affluent and safe nations in modern history, potentially in the history of the world. And yet we're at a loss to figure out why so many people are suffering within it. With assorted pathologies and mental illness. We, we can't understand why for the first time in recorded history, one in three young people have an anxiety disorder not just feel anxious sometimes, but have an anxiety disorder. Um, that suicide rates among teenage girls have risen 154% since 2007. Uh, and it's even higher among preteen girls. Uh, the Surgeon General recently said that we have a loneliness epidemic in our nation, that we're more isolated than ever before, more disconnected from human warmth and love, love and kindness. And he said, it's worse for our health the epidemic of loneliness that we're experiencing is worse for our health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And that was before the pandemic, right? We live in a broken world. And yet David, who spent much of his life on the run, 
David, who was an actual victim of attempted violence and injustice, understood that these aren't just internal issues and these aren't just metaphors, that there are people right now that, that the raging, unrelenting waters of violence are coming against who are literally like a bird trapped in a cage, that these aren't metaphors, that this is some people's day-to-day -day reality. And that's why at Passion, in our conferences, in our churches, in our movement, we started something called the End It Movement to shine a light on this reality of modern day slavery, to bring people an awareness of what's happening in the world and to change legislation so that more people could have a way out of freedom and hope and life, to call attention to the fact that there are nearly 40 million people, according to the International Labor Organization, who are enslaved or, or being trafficked, bought and sold against their world, will in the world today. 40 million. That's more than the population of New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and Rhode Island and Maine, New Hampshire and Vermont. Imagine the outcry globally. If there was human trafficking, if it was confined to a geographical location like that, how we would rise up to liberate and set free. And yet it is no less heinous just because it is underground and spread out around the world. It is happening. We are driving past it on our way to work and on our way to worship. It is a massive global problem. The International Labor Organization will estimate that it's $150 billion a year industry, fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. If you don't know how much $150 billion is, I looked it up the same year that that statistic came out. That was more than Disney and Netflix and Coca-Cola and Starbucks made combined that same year. It is a massive global problem. It is happening all around us. And so what do we have to offer as the kingdom people of God? What do we have to offer to a world that is hurting, that is suffering, as we look out and we see people like birds trapped in a cage, what do we have to offer? I'll pray for you. Yeah. And our prayers come in motion. They come in power that we worship a rescuing and redeeming God who is moving and shining a bright light into the difficulty and devastation of this world. And we move with him that God is calling us to risk the cold danger of the mountain of mission. He's saying, come run with me. Come run with me as I bring my love to the world. And when you do, you'll come alive in the process. God's saying, come run with me. I'm inviting you to be a part of this. And is it, it's not easy. I can promise you that, but it's beautiful. It's not easy to climb a mountain, but it's beautiful. And he's saying, just follow me. Just trust me. Come run with me. And as you follow in the footsteps of our saving and rescuing King, and you make that a habit in your life, you'll feel strength begin to return to your weary legs. And as you breathe the cool mountain air, you'll feel your heads clear that this is who I am meant to be. This is what it is to follow my King. Amen. Because kingdom character recognizes that a person of God always uses their strength to serve others, no matter the cost to themselves. Uh, just a week and a half ago, my wife and I were in the, uh, the highlands of Scotland. And it made me think of this, this old Scottish pastor who was just a legend. Uh, and in the 1800s or so, I read a quote. I didn't read it in the 1800s. <laughs> I read a quote recently that he said in the 1800s. And, uh, and I'll never forget it. He said, I'm here to recover the claim. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves at the crossroads so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, at the kind of place where soldiers gamble and thieves curse and cynics talk smut because that's who he died for and that's what he died about and that's where churchmen ought to be and what churchmen ought to be about. Amen.
Do you see that? Do you feel that? Do you feel the energy in that? That God is moving towards the broken and he's calling us to move with him. And here's the crazy thing. As we trust him with that and we move with him, offering our bodies as a physical sacrifice, knowing that this is our true and proper worship in the Lord, we become live action displays of the drama of redemption. As we trust God in this and we step out into the world, we become this small picture of this cosmic reality that God has given himself to bring you life, that he is a rescuing and intervening God. And we become a picture of what Jesus has done for us. And when we get that, that Jesus came for no other reason, that he loved you, that he would lay everything down for you, that he would set his face like stone towards Jerusalem. He would march up into that city and go past the inner courts and he would go outside the walls, outside the gates and walk up that hill of Calvary in love to lay himself down for you. When you get that, when you understand that he did that for you, that changes everything, changes everything. And we begin to see ourselves as an extension of God's love for this world. Love one another, Jesus said, as I have loved you. And when we do, when we step out in love to be a part of God's redeeming, restorative, redemptive work in this world, we become a picture of Jesus. And that can change a life, that can change this planet. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.